Hi, I'm Amelia Bordeaux from Diamond Standard, and this is our podcast, Clarity. And this podcast, we have conversations about uh, financial market and economic themes that impact both the diamond commodity and also the wider precious metals market. I'm so happy to be joined today by Chris Marsh from Exanti Data, and today we'll be discussing inflation. So Chris, welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. <laughs> it's good to see you again and good to hear you again. Um, so I just thought we'll start right with the basics. I mean, we could, there's so much to speak about, but what is driving US CPI, Eurozone and UK inflation? Could you give us an overview? Okay, sure. So, um, so it's fun. Uh, so maybe just to sort of begin is like big picture, let's step back and think about what's driven the inflation since the pandemic. And then we can talk about the, the most recent prints. So, I mean, what's fascinating about this, the situation we've had in the last few years is that for at least a decade, right, the main challenge for central banks has been that inflation has been too low and the challenge has been to try and get inflation up to target. Um, and then it was almost as if uh, we had a situation where the powers that be decided, well, the humans are not going to deal with it themselves and so we'll impose a, an external shock that will create the circumstances which will allow them to escape inflation the inflation trap for the first time in, in a long time. And um, so we've had a series of inflationary shocks, uh, beginning with the pandemic, obviously, in, in the beginning of 2020, uh, which has been probably the main driver in the United States. And then in Europe uh, two, uh, last year, um, in 2022, we had um, the energy shock and food-related shock um, due to the invasion of Ukraine. So we've had an, a series of shocks um, which have been huge, um, not just the fact that there's been shocks to inflation, they're, they're, they've both been massive. So going back to the pandemic in broad brush terms, obviously there were lockdowns and associated with this, there were large fiscal transfers to households to manage their, their situation through the pandemic. Um, and so during the first year of the pandemic in the US, household deposits, according to the flow of funds accounts, increased about two and a half trillion dollars. Uh, and the next year, so in 2022, sorry, in 2021, they increased a further $2 trillion. So over the period of 2020, 2021, there were about $5 trillion uh, increase in the value of household deposits in the United States. That's about 20% of GDP. Um, but that's really only the sort of the tip of the iceberg, because when households receive these transfers, what, what do they do with it? Well, uh, for the first, in the first instance, a lot of uh, households went into, uh, into buying um other financial instruments or, or moving to real estate or so moving to larger houses and so forth. So the actual impact of on and through equity and real estate uh, on through valuation effects following this uh, was, was even larger still. So to a first approximation, for every trillion dollars increase in, in household deposits during the pandemic, there was about six trillion increase in non-monetary wealth in housing yeah. and equity. You put those things together, the households benefited during the pandemic from a wealth perspective, by about 150% of GDP in improvement in household wealth. Uh, so this situation is completely different to the situation post, uh, post the great financial crisis. After the GFC, households had bruised balance sheets. The housing market was very weak. House prices fell. Those people lucky enough to hang on to their houses were probably sitting on negative equity for a while. So housing, household and balance sheets were, were stretched very badly after the, after the GFC. In this, in this instance, household balance sheets benefited massively following the sort of crisis around the pandemic. So it's a very different setup to that the decade after the GFC. And naturally, um, with the increase in, in, in monetary wealth, increase in, in other wealth, 
households had a choice, what do we do? Well, we can spend it, right? So what we saw after the pandemic or from beginning in 2021 really was that households started to spend first on durable goods, things that could be delivered to the house, to the door directly. And then later on, this, this translated into services. So what we really saw from the beginning of 2021 was durable goods um, accelerated in price sharply. Partly this was used cars and trucks, uh, which for some reason during inflationary episodes is one of the key items that increases sharply in price early. This was mentioned by Alan Blindley in his review of the 1970s. So it's a kind of an oddity. But what uh, what I like to have, what I've liked to do since 2021 is to strip out these used cars and trucks trucks from the durables within the CPI in the US. So it gives a kind of a cleaner read on the other durables that is not uh, sort of impacted by the, the used cars and trucks anomaly. And durable goods in the US went from below 1% uh, uh, annualized inflation at the end of 2020, reached about 7.5% in April of 2021, and then increased further to about 13% at the end of 2021 on a three-month annualized basis. And since then, durable goods has been on, on a downward path, but very slow and quite choppy. So, uh, in fact, these durables adjusted for these used cars and trucks have been falling uh, for for about two years now. However, uh, as I say, choppy. So at the beginning of this year, early this year, they actually increased again in price quite quite sharply around January when the new uh, pricing for the year were, were, were imposed by, by um, producers. Um, but the, what we saw in the June print is that we saw um, a negative print month on month and over three months for the uh, and, and the largest negative print for some time. So actually, these durable goods are contracting uh, at about 5% annualized now in, in terms of price. So we now have deflation in durable goods within the CPI. And that was, you know, that was pretty important in the last in the June CPI print as, as contributing to a slowdown in, in price pressure. Um, but the so that sounds pretty good news for, for the Fed. The bad news is uh, that service prices remain very sticky and very high. So if we were to look at um, services over three month basis, so services are also complicated because of various noisy items from the reopening that, that, that go into it. So housing is one thing. We've seen that rents have gone up in price quite, quite sharply. So I take housing out as well from services, and then I remove a few other items which are noisy, like hotels, airfares, and medical services. And that leaves a kind of a core measure of services. And we know Powell has said look, he wants to look at these core services as well. So if you look at what right. happened to services during the pandemic, they were pretty, you know, they were running about two and a half percent in the summer of 2021. And that crept upwards on a three month annualized basis to about seven and a half percent and towards the middle and the end of last year. So services, which are the, by far the largest weight within this sort of, you know, some measure of CPI stripping out all these noisy items, services were running about seven and a half percent. So what's happened over the last three or four months is that this has come down from about seven and a half percent to something like five percent. So. In fact, services, a core measure of services has actually softened uh, quite a bit as well, but it's still running way too hot for the for the sort of Fed's 2% target. So, so 5% right. is still way above what we would expect. Pre-pandemic, you'd be looking at maybe 3, 2 to 3% for these services. So um, so in fact, we, if you combine these, these, two, these two things, these durable goods adjusted for the noisy used cars and trucks, which are running about minus 5 but the services, which are running about plus five, you put them together, you probably got underlying inflation, three, three and a half percent over three months. And over one month, it's probably close to two percent. So 
actually we've had a, di a gentle disinflation over the last few months, which which really showed up in the last inflation print. So, so the, I should also mention one thing, right? That the, the number itself was was exaggerated to the downside by these noisy items that I've been stripping out as I go along. All of these items happen to print uh, in seasonally adjusted terms, month on month negative. Some of them large negative, like airfares, but um, used cars and trucks were negative. Airfares, medical services, hotels and motels. So all of them contributed to core being much lower uh, than than the underlying inflation rate. So that overstated the good news in the print. The, if you take those out, they were running you know, core, core was running about one point nine percent annualized month on month. You take them out, but you still get a disinflation story. So it's still good news. But the good news has to be tempered by this fact that the services are running uh, uh, sort of maybe 5%, a little bit higher uh, once you adjust for the noisy items. And that's still too high for the Fed, but it's moving in the right direction. So that's a sort of a, a, a lengthy discussion of, of what's happened. Yeah, that's good. It's very complicated. I know so many people just watching owner's equivalent rent and, you know, saying that that's going to come down, that rents are starting to adjust lower. But um, what you make the point of just the core services, ex-housing, that's good. Yeah. It's good news. Well, I, I like to, yeah, I kind of strip out the housing because we know it's kind of baked in the cake the way that, you know, the, the house price, uh, the housing measures have, have gone up during the pandemic. And it just takes a few years to wash into the actual index. So I, that's why I like to take them out. But I, keep, I like to keep an eye on them. But, uh, but I think what the Fed will do is we can see that the disinflation is happening in these rent and, and OER measures. So it's it's still too high, but it's coming down slowly and it's probably going to come down further. And so I don't think there's any reason to massively panic about those, which is why I like to strip it out and just focus on these services. Um, so, so yeah, so I think that the, some good news for the Fed there, but I don't think they can be completely relaxed at, at the moment. Interesting. Okay. Should we turn to UK? Because we keep seeing, obviously, the headlines of cost of living crisis in the United Kingdom and to me kind of, you know, sitting on the sidelines over here, it just looks like Bank of England is maybe in a, a tough spot. So um, what is happening? You're, you're based in the UK. How, how yeah, so, so the, the situation in the UK has been very different, right? So r roughly speaking in the US, right? If you think back to the end of this year, there was kind of people were sort of thinking the two narratives, one was a recession, the other one was that inflation was rolling over in the US. And then what happened was we got a strong January print, maybe January and February were above what we would hope in the US. And so there was sort of a concern about uh, inflation coming down, down slower than hoped. And then obviously we had the banking crisis. Um, so that was that happened early on in the US. Now the UK reopened a similar time to the US and in many respects was was leading, if you like, on, in terms of the inflation dynamic. Um, but then what happened was the January print was pretty weak. And uh, certainly that it was tempting to think, well, maybe we're turning the corner on inflation in the UK. But what, in fact, we discovered over the last uh, three or four months is that, uh, that in, the, the UK had a, had a bit of a sort of a second wind, as it were, on inflation into the uh, sort of the turn of the first quarter this year. So roughly speaking, as you probably know, the UK financial year is, is based around the, uh, April. So at that turn of the financial year, we actually saw a pickup in, in wage growth uh, sequentially and a pickup in, in core inflation sequentially, uh, which was way above um, what I expected at the beginning of the year and, and many people. Uh, so, so in the end, uh, the April, the sort of March, April, May prints were, were very strong uh, and obviously a core inflation printed in year on year terms above 7% in the UK. 
So the, the big anomalies here being that goods prices, so we talked about durable goods in the US are now sequentially negative. Durable goods in the UK sort of reaccelerated around this, this Easter time, the financial year, the end of the financial year, and then uh, services have remained sort of sticky as it, they have elsewhere. So what happened this week is that the June inflation print was the first sort of meaningful downside surprise in the UK for a while. Uh, and it, and um, obviously in year-on-year -year terms, the core inflation is still very, very strong. It's about 6.9, I think it was. It rounded up to 6.9, so it was very close to being 6.8, um, which I think three or four months ago would have been considered bad news. But considering we're above 7% on core, this looks like good news for the Bank of England. Um, and so, what's really happened in in the uh, in the June print is that the that there was a, you know that inflation was still above pre pandemic norms for June, but it, but it was uh, way lower. That roughly speaking, in the past few months, there has been roughly 0.5 percentage points of surprise on goods and services in the UK. That that surprise came down to about 0.2, so a much smaller surprise. Now, uh, if that surprise continues, then core inflation in the UK will roll off from here from about 6.9 probably be about 5.7 sorry 4.7 by the end of the uh, sorry 5.7 by the end of the year and then by the end of the next year it'll be closer to 4%. So if that surprise continues it's still way too strong. Um however it looks like we could be turning the corner. So the the caveat here has to be it's only one print. Um the good news is if you look across the world now there's sort of signs of disinflation everywhere in the UK we might expect to to play a, a role uh, in joining that. Um, but obviously, uh, so so it is it is good news. But we're we're still a long way from what the Bank of England would probably be comfortable with. Uh, but yeah, the UK kind of this week joined a disinflation party, if that's the right way to put it. Yeah, it, was, it seemed quick because I know last month they had a very an upside surprise, and people were quite worried when that upside surprise came for the the previous month's release. And now it they're sort of less worried about it. Um, yeah, well, so I suppose, I suppose one thing to note then, I mean, so the good news is it, it was pretty broad-based, the disinflation dynamic for the UK. So if you look at the median of all goods in the UK basket was was down close to 2% annualised, the median. And that's easily the lowest for a long time. But obviously there's a lot of energy-related items within there and, and energy is sort of disinflating in the UK. If you split it out into goods and services, which are core goods and services, core goods fell um, sharply during the month on a median basis. So this is very similar to the US and, and the Eurozone now. Core services remained sticky and high. Um, so again, like, like the Fed, the Bank of England can take a lot from the print, which is good news, but there's this sort of underlying stickiness in services, which clearly is, is there in the UK as it has been in the, the, as it is in the Europe. We may talk about the Eurozone, but also, you know, in the US I mentioned already. So sticky services is a theme. And the UK doesn't hasn't been absolved of that, uh, but but we are you know the June print brings us closer to the experience in the in the US and in the eurozone. Um, That's good news as well. What about eurozone? Eurozone is in my understanding that they have been kind of lagging in the the rate hiking cycle, but they had unique challenges with the situation in Ukraine and how that impacted energy prices. Yeah. Right? So the the so the eurozone. Um, was sort of in terms of the the, the pandemic response policy response to the pandemic was maybe not as large as in the US, but partly because the, the social safety nets were already stronger in Europe. But uh, so the Europe was already experiencing an acceleration in inflation into 2021, but it was nowhere near that sort of in the acceleration that we'd seen uh, in the US. Um, 
uh, by that point. But it was, you know, it was moving in that direction and policymakers had already started to react. And then, of course, the, the, the invasion of Ukraine and the energy crisis that went with that and obviously the, the spillover to the food prices in Europe. So it turns out that that shock seems to have had a pretty similar impact in terms of the impact on goods first, primarily goods first and services later. It seems to be playing out similar to the US. So where inflation was already rising in Europe by the end of 2021, it accelerated in terms of goods into 2022 um, and, and, um, and then services has followed later. Um, and so if you look across um, what's happening in Eurozone, inflation is sort of sequentially uh, the inflation rate for uh, the sort of durable goods or in, in the Eurozone, in, in the harmonized index of consumer prices, as the Eurostat defines it, we have this item called non-energy industrial goods. So it's all these traded goods similar to durable goods in the US. And these traded goods, these uh, non-energy industrial goods reached um, above, uh, so maybe they reached sort of 7% nearly year on year about six months ago or so. Um, and they started to roll over now. So we've, we've got this disinflation in uh, in these durable goods in the Eurozone now. So I think if you look sequentially, I mentioned earlier, the US has negative uh, sequential durable goods uh, inflation. Eurozone's probably looking at 3% over the last three months in durable goods inflation annualized, uh, which is sort of less than half its peak. But then if you look at services like in the US, services continue to be strong and sticky. Uh, so on a year-on-year basis, services continue to accelerate. They're running about maybe 5.5, uh, maybe 5. I can't remember exactly the number. But if you look across the Eurozone uh, in terms of a sort of diffusion of, of, of the services across the major countries, it, it's running around that rate still sequentially, maybe a little bit lower, but it's, it's sticky. It hasn't seen any softening uh, yet, as in, in, in the US. So... The Eurozone is very much lagging, different different shocks from the US uh, because of the energy shock. But the overall pattern is that the Eurozone has moved later in terms of the reflation and is living through what the US was going through maybe 12, six to 12 months ago, perhaps. So it's interesting that the Eurozone has experienced a, an inflationary shock similar, not quite as big, but similar to the US. Uh, and we're going through the same pattern as in the US. From what I'm just anecdotally reading, it looks like there's a lot of um, tourism from America to Europe this summer. Um, the tourist season is strong there, so that's probably not helping the services prices. Though they're probably seasonally adjusted and things like that. But um, yeah, but, we should well, try that. Yeah. What do you think? I was going to say that's one of the challenges I think at the moment. Right, all the seasonality is slightly messed up because of the pandemic. I mean, you know, if you think seasonal adjustments really use the last three years of data to allow them to sort of figure out what the seasonal pattern should be. And the last three years, two of the three years have been pretty badly distorted by pandemic shutdowns, then reopenings. This is certainly true in wages. And and I think that that's a challenge that we have over the summer. And I, I agree like that, this, that one of the problems Europe has over this summer, if you like, or the ECB is that if service inflation comes in very strong in the summer, so you, you don't get the, the slowdown in year on year numbers from core that you might hope, then they have to continue hiking into the end of the year. And so, what happens this summer is, is pretty important. So if the American tourists come along and keep spending money in Greece, then it, it may make the ECB's job a bit trickier. Yeah. I was reading Greece was more popular than uh, Italy this summer. That Italy is a strong number two. That's my favorite. Um, we should talk about what happened to the transitory 
inflation discussion because all over in general with the core CPI for the latest month, June coming in a little lower than expectations in the United States, this this topic has has come up again, whether or not inflation has been transitory, you know, and I'm, I, when I look back or when I think about, you know, back when I um, was with you working together in like 2021 and then kind of after the Ukraine invasion in 2022 and the, the central bankers from, you know, US, UK, as you know, and, and Eurozone kept using the word transitory. And when I think back about it now, I was thinking, I don't think that they ever put a, a time frame on it, at least verbally, perhaps in their forecast. But when they would speak and, and we were listening to them very closely, I don't recall Powell or Lagarde saying transitory is six months or transitory is means this. So is it transitory? Yeah, well, this is it. This is, That may be, may, I think we may look back and and say that there was the, the mistake was around that time when they emphasized the transitory, but they didn't give a time frame. Uh, maybe because naturally conservative, they didn't want to be held to anything. But what was what sort of happened around the summer of 2021? I think it was the Powell speech at Jackson Hole. But you can, you know, uh, the re, uh, listeners can correct correct this themselves. But it was around that time he made the case that this is transitory, and so there was a kind of a sense of what would look like complacency once inflation accelerated. The issue being there, I mean, how how do we know what how the, the shock was so large, especially the, the the monetary shock from the pandemic. How do we know how long that should take to play out and what impact it should have on inflation over what horizon? And of course, you know, everybody knows Friedman's famous uh, idea that inf- you know, inf- um, that money is a, that there are long and variable, variable lags in, in monetary policy. So uh, this was a uniquely large shock and a unique shock in terms of a, a broad monetary shock from the pandemic. Um, and the idea that it would only take six months to wash out seemed a little bit fanciful. Um, and so what, what, in, what the central bankers were kind of emphasizing at the time was w- that we would expect some kind of inflation, but it's going to be transitory uh, and therefore set the expectation that within six months it would be rolling over again. Of course, these long and variable lags imply that there maybe should be two years, maybe three years for this to wash out completely. And in fact, if you go back to the energy shocks now, this is sort of apples and oranges now because the energy shocks in the 70s are not the same as what we've just experienced. But um, if you look at the disinflation experience of the of Germany in the late 70s and early 80s, the Bundesbank sort of cut its teeth as an inflation fighting central bank around that experience. And that that, that witnessed sort of in terms of core inflation, roughly a three year run up in, in headline core and a three year run down. Now, yeah. many people would say if the major central banks can replicate the Bundesbank's experience, they would, that would be a success. And a success for the Bundesbank was a six year round trip from say 2% core back to 2% core wow. via a peak so of around six. Year, we're at three years. Exactly. exactly. So if, if years. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, in a way, you know, if if policymakers had in 2021 said, look, we've had a big shock, the monetary aggregates have, grown, have jumped massively, the wealth effects have been huge, we will have a transitory inflation, but it'll take two to three years before we'll get, get through it, then they would have been a much stronger position to uh, to to um, move more more uh, sort of cautiously on rates, as it turned out, because every single major central bank had inflation forecasts which were way too low. As those forecasts were beat, infl- central banks had to then react to the to the to the um, overshoot of of inflation from their target, not from their projections, um, and that has that's caused central bankers to become reactive rather than proactive. Now. 
I think someone has to go back and think about what went wrong or what's happened during this experience. Maybe nothing has gone wrong, but um, central bankers are supposed to be inflation targeters. That means that they're supposed to see through the the shocks that are sort of temporary or that that, uh, that are, uh, have negative shocks that don't impact inflation over a sort of two or three year horizon and react to the, the forecast of inflation, not the incoming flow of inflation. What's happened in the last two years is the central banks have returned to reacting to incoming data instead of projecting uh, inflation and, re and, and setting policy on that basis. So there was something that went wrong in the middle of 2021. Uh, it will be some years before we can really say whether it was terrible what, what has happened or you know whether central banks have actually done a good job. Uh, my suspicion is the inflation was almost self-correcting. But once the, the, the wealth shock in real terms uh, washed out because prices adjusted, that household balance sheets back, went back to where they were and, and there was some maybe residual inflation for other structural reasons, which we might want to talk about. But, but, um, but the actual pandemic shock itself may not have needed a huge monetary response, a uh, huge in, in interest rate response, or at least not as large as that we have seen. But that right. that is, you know, a lot of people would disagree with me on that. But we will we will know probably only in a few years' time. It's too bad that um, that transitory wasn't really defined, and I understand why because they probably didn't want to be held to that. It would be difficult for people to call them out on that. Um, and everything you said, it's just it's too bad from a consumer standpoint because. I kind of feel like it impacted consumers in the sense that if they had been more transparent or put a time frame on transitory, like you said, at the six year round trip or for the Bundesbank, it took three years to bring that inflation down. Then I think consumers could have like prepared themselves better, both mentally and, and adjusted perhaps their spending, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. That's bad how it could. I mean, assuming a, a consumer listens to a central bank, but yeah. <laughs> there's that too. Yeah, the other irony is that, you know, one of the great developments in macroeconomics since the 70s was the idea of, of the importance of expectations, right? Both, you know, in terms of formal economic modeling, the rational expectations approach, but also more generally the idea that policymakers set policy on the basis of expectations of economic actors, households and, and firms. And, and actually inflation expectations haven't massively uh, increased, certainly only temporarily at times. The long-term inflation expectations have, have remained fairly subdued. And you can see that in long in long term in bond prices, um, but um, but but central bankers kind of threw out the inflation expectations um, sort of sort of approach to setting policy and then return to reacting to incoming data when um, when maybe they could have focused more on expectations. But again, this is something that will have to be sort of revisited in a few years. Uh, if it really was only a transitory inflation shock, just one that took two to three years instead of six months, and they were reacting to incoming data instead of looking at inflation expectations, then there is a danger that they you know that they were setting policy on on the on the basis of the wrong information and then I suppose the additional wrinkle, if you think about this from the monetary perspective, uh, a lot of monetarists now in the u k for example, are pointing out that money, money aggregates are now contracting. So, you know, it's, it's the same in the US. Um, so the broad money M2 and, and in the UK M4, uh, in the Eurozone, the M2 are contracting and at least sequentially, maybe now year on year and, and across the countries. So the, the argument there is, and Mervyn King, the former governor of the Bank of England, made the point this week, and uh, that if you're now setting policy, if you're hiking and money aggregates are contracting, then 
you can make the mistake of causing a recession and seeing an inflation undershoot because on the basis of these monetary signals. Now, I think that we need to be cautious about interpreting these as well, because a lot of the monetary contraction is a portfolio adjustment. So people are basically saying, I don't want to get 2% in my bank if I can get 4 or 5% in a bond fund. So they're shifting. So there's a portfolio shift out of deposits into, uh, into uh, non-monetary uh, uh, financial assets. So you need to be careful interpreting these monetary aggregates. And so I don't fully agree with King's interpretation. However, it is an important point, right? If, if central banks aren't reacting to the right information, and if this is useful information, then, then there's a danger that they are going to be hiking too much on the basis of backward-looking information. So, as if, so the, the, the past two or three years have been fascinating from the perspective of, uh, in terms of the, the numbers, the, the inflation that we've had, but also the, the, the policy response and the, the overall uh, intellectual sort of framework for monetary policy has really been challenged uh, in the yeah. last few years. And um, what's, what, what I find most concerning is I, don't, I can't point to any of the major central banks uh, or the, the governors or the leadership who, um, who have laid out a very clear framework for thinking about this. Uh, this still feels like we're, we're reactive, and the different central banks yeah. may have done different different job. You know, may have, some may have been better than others, but in general, there's no intellectual leadership. Right. It still feels like they're looking at the trees and not the the forest. And you know, yeah. in the U.S., that's the bond market I'm watching most closely right now. You know, bond volatility is so high, so elevated, and it, the reason for that is because every single tier one data point is just shifting. Hmm. Feds um, is just shifting the Fed's expectations, the, the Fed fund futures, so so yeah. much. So, yeah, yeah, tough. Well, if we look ahead um, to drivers of inflation in the future, and I'll, we'll put a time frame on it, so we're not transitory. I guess like five to ten years out, what's going to is is inflation going to change structurally? What are going to be the drivers? Ahead? Yeah, so so this is the so I, I I have to spend too much time thinking about these things. Really, I probably shouldn't. But uh, you know, if, if I look across the the sort of central, the speeches by major central bankers, you know, they're looking ahead to a world where the, the decade ahead is, is maybe different to the decade we've just had. And it's not just because of the inflation we're experiencing now that there are a number of transitions happening uh, in terms of the climate and ad, ad, adapting to the climate situation. Uh, there is the in, there's a sort of friend shoring and the post Ukraine invasion need to recalibrate supply chains globally to, to sort of areas where you can from from people you can trust um, right. and and then of course there's a sort of technological changes associated with with AI and so forth right so there are a number of moving parts which could fundamentally change the drivers of inflation over the over the decade ahead now the the bad news if you like is many of these kind of um, uh, could all be structurally point to higher inflation, at least for a period of time, right? So obviously over a long enough horizon, things like the climate transition could end up with lower energy prices once the investment in green energy infrastructure is in place. So we're talking about the period during the, the sort of upswing in this investment. And um, and so there the should could be upward pressure on energy prices. And then the entire structure of uh, traded goods uh, prices and you know services as well to some extent could be impacted by that energy transition so to give you the example in the, in Europe right there they're legislating now in the European Parliament for um, the the, the uh, green transition so that by 2030 they want to cut uh, carbon emissions by 55 percent from the pre um, from uh, I think some 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 uh, metric in the 90s um, but to achieve that as well as increasing the price of carbon um, that, that firms have to have to 
have to pay, they are going to require firms to do carbon offsets. So you've got to take carbon from the air, put it in underground or, or whatever, uh, and that's going to cost money. So it's, it's not going to cost them in terms of the energy they buy. It's going to cost them in terms of the extras they've got to do to use the energy. I haven't seen any sensible exp um, sort of projections of how this is going to hit uh, the cost base for European uh, producers or um, um, and therefore consumer prices. Um, but clearly, that this is a positive. This is a, a positive impact on inflation in the traded goods in particular, which is kind of a, a mini version of what we saw in the in the um, in the recent energy shock. Um, and and then there are obviously other items within the CPI. If you look at uh, food, um, the the ECB has done a study which suggests that because of global warming, that food prices could be between 0.2 percent could put 0.2 to to one percentage point onto headline inflation. Uh, in the period yeah. through uh, 2050. So if, if that were to happen, so if you, if you look at the drivers of core inflation uh, in the last two decades, have been basically been services and a little bit of food, a little bit of energy and nothing from goods. Now, if you suddenly get a, a bit from goods, a bit, from, a bit more from energy and a bit more from food, then the service inflation, the structural service inflation that you had in the past two decades, which has been the most part of core inflation, has to be shrunk massively. Um, so, so that's why service inflation is going to be the interesting one from a structural perspective in terms of where the central bank can hit their inflation target. Um, and now the bad news is the labor market is extremely tight and, and wages at the moment cyclically are very strong. So if we go into a decade of very tight labor markets, then it may be hard to keep service inflation low without driving unemployment higher. On the other hand, we have these technological changes and, and AI in particular, which has the potential to uh, make huge uh, technological uh, improvements in the service sector, which if it yeah. was productivity improving, then maybe, just maybe services inflation can be offset through these technological changes. So what would what this would mean for inflation is in the, in the worst case where you don't get any AI improvement in technology or in productivity, then central banks are gonna find it harder to hit the inflation target uh, relative to the past two decades without driving uh, wages much lower. On the other hand, if AI plays a big role, then in fact, that may do the central bank's work for them and service inflation may come down. And so unlike in the past three decades, when globalization brought goods prices down in relative to services prices, we may have a period where good pr goods prices rise in the climate transition relative to services, but that allows central banks to meet their targets without, um, without too much trouble. Um, so structurally, we're, we're going through a very interesting phase as well. The problem, of course, being it's very hard to trade a structural story. So, you know, yeah. still, still, still most interested in the, the monthly developments and the CPI and, and thinking about where we are in the transition from the inflation since the pandemic, but with one eye on, well, what is going to drive inflation in the next five years? So it's a very interesting sort of changeover that we're going through. Yeah, these are such interesting macro times. I mean, I have a few thoughts. I would think that if inflation kind of structurally does shift higher because of the things that you mentioned, one, central banks would have to revise up their inflation targets at some point. And the other thing is, I guess we would be looking at more benefits from real holding real assets. Those are typically longer term alt investments, which are typically longer term and, you know, commodities as well if inflation has that structural shift higher and remains higher yeah. in the next decade. Um, so that's interesting. I yeah. think that, uh, I guess the other thing too is I just read all the headlines right now. There's a lot of headlines this week about 
uh, you know, ports and um, certain countries blocking shipments from those ports, oil, grain, and, you know, kind of what that will do to those commodities, food prices, transportation prices, because there's certainly a lot of assets around the world that are now going into free and fair shipping lanes, keeping those global shipping lanes open, because you read the headlines, some of them are uh, attempting to be blocked here and there. So that's something um, interesting as well, if that continues. And just the whole EV story, I mean, I'm here in Florida, so there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, electric vehicles and just the whole transition there that I can see that it's more expensive to buy them. It's more expensive to repair them. It's, you know, do we have the infrastructure that you can drive 400 miles and then charge them? So just all these kind of issues that are, that are creeping up. So it should continue to be a, you know, interesting macro times and interesting investing times, I think. Yeah. And I suppose the the one thing that we haven't mentioned yet is the demographic story, right? So the, the idea that we may be going through this transition in terms of the workforce and more people uh, retiring and then a, a smaller a labor force uh, means that you know, th- there's the argument that this is inflationary or at least raises our stars, as it were, that sort of the, the equilibrium real rate that the central bank has to achieve to, to, to balance saving and investments. Um, now, I, I've never been convinced by that myself, mainly because when I look at Japan, they've been going through this experience of, of aging for, for a long time. Um, however, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm willing to give it more of a shot now that the sort of thinking post-pandemic, that if Japan is, is the exception, not the rule, then maybe we have to also navigate the, the demographic, demographic transition. Um, and, and, and then, you know, associated with that, the questions are, well, will the labor force shrink if there is huge migration? And we need migration because of climate change. So a lot of shifting sands, some of these structural issues that have been in the background for many years, including the climate issue, are all starting to sort of hit at the same time, um, and and disentangling the relative impacts is extremely difficult. Uh, in fact, one of the most, I mean, I sat in and listened to one of these conferences on climate, the impact of climate change on macroeconomy in recent weeks. And one of the main messages from that is nobody has a clue. Right? They basically say, look, this is a nascent, nascent field. We're, we're learning as we go along and, and we're really, you know, we're trying to figure it out. And, um, and it, that's very much a, it feels very much like that not only is that the case but that also opens up opportunities for investment uh it's just you've got to be you've got to keep an open mind and be willing to move quickly when you see opportunities so um so yeah very interesting times from uh, inflation and uh, perspective um so something yeah. that had been a it's kind of been a dead field for a decade and now it's actually really interesting um so yeah and because it's been a dead field for a decade i wonder if there's not a lot of people who've been watching it maybe <laughs> and you know that know about it you know it's, it's interesting same thing when rates were low for a decade now yeah. you know new traders are in the market new portfolio managers are in the market or maybe they're not new they have been working for nine ten years but they haven't seen you know these rate moves so that's interesting exactly yeah it's 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 um keeps us on our toes anyway it keeps us uh got to keep an open mind well i think um Everyone needs your intellectual leadership with, uh, you know, inflation and everything that you're thinking about structurally in the future. Um, I think the Bank of England maybe needs it the most. Maybe you should uh, become the new governor of the Bank of England. I, I'll I get a lobby for that for you. <laughs> I, I will get, I will get my No worries, Amelia. It's very, very nice to speak to you. Yeah, it's very nice to speak to you too. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Goodbye.
Okay. Materials presented are not intended to be a recommendation, solicitation, or offer to buy or sell any securities, financial instruments, investments, or to participate in any particular investment strategy. The content and opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and should not be considered as a guarantee of future results, performance, or outcomes. Before acting on any information or content presented herein, you should consult with a qualified financial professional, tax advisor, or legal counsel to determine the suitability, risks, and potential rewards of any investment or financial strategy for your individual circumstances, financial situation, and risk tolerance.